Proverbs 25 said, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it is the glory of kings to search it out. This morning we turn in the Word in Matthew chapter 6 for just such an experience, a very challenging passage of Scripture with all kinds of riddles and things we might wonder about, how it's stated. And the more you dig, the greater the blessing is in sorting out what Jesus is saying. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon. I say the most famous sermon ever taught because he opened his mouth and began to teach his disciples. And we're turning the corner in the Sermon on the Mount into from Matthew 5 where he's teaching the law as quotations from the law and correcting misinterpretations of it and helping us understand, helping the, 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 the listeners in his day and the readers today, helping us understand what the law is. The law is a portrait of God's righteousness that we fall short of. And it calls us to, to mourn, poor spirit, because we're not righteous as God is righteous. We're not perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. It kills us and shows us we need a Savior. And we turn the corner, believers, in Matthew chapter 6, to what your life should be like as one who belongs to God, one who belongs to the coming kingdom, one who is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ regarding the practice of one's righteousness. It's a very challenging passage for many reasons. We're going to need God the Holy Spirit to equip us to know the things that God is giving us here in, in this passage. We're asking for nothing less than the filling ministry of the Spirit with the Word of Christ with the effect that the word of Christ in Matthew chapter 6 is richly dwelling within us so that it isn't just something that we're listening to today and always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth, not having the, the, the appearance of godliness but denying its power, but being doers of the word, knowing it and so doing it. We have no interest in being people that, well, I don't know much about God, but I sure serve him. We don't want that. And we don't want to be those people that, well, I just study the word because that's what I like to do, but we don't serve him. You want to actually be Christians. You want to actually be disciples of our Savior who hear his word, believe him, and then in faith do what he's saying. And today he's talking about how you do what you do in righteousness. We're going to need the Spirit of God, as I said, to equip us. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. The Bible says that believers who are capable of personal sin, which will grieve and quench the Holy Spirit and his work in us, believers are uh, responsible not to walk in darkness, but walk in the light. So I always afford that time of private confession if you need to take anything to God. If you're new to this idea, listen, it's not about you telling me or your spouse or anyone else. The primary offense is the one, that, the one that's been offended is God through personal sin. And that can be resentment. That can be anger, illicit anger, angry that is sin, as Ephesians 4 says. That can be jealousy. That can be envy. That can be things that only you and God know. You need to take those things to God, even things that you've said, things you've done. Confess them to God and receive the cleansing and forgiveness that he offers believers who do so. Let's pray. Father, we come to the Bible today with open hearts. We're opening the word and we're opening our hearts so that you would have your way. We're saying it, Father, we want to actually do it. Glorify yourself as we think through Jesus' challenge about a life lived before you and before men. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Jesus begins in Matthew 6 with a warning that ends up being a very helpful principle for us. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. A very challenging verse in Matthew 6. And I'm challenging you that this is a principle about practicing your righteousness before men. Beware, in other words, avoid the hazard of falling into the trap of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. For the next uh, couple paragraphs, Jesus is going to elaborate on this idea and illustrate it with works of righteousness, with, um, with prayer, with giving alms or giving to the poor, with fasting. And he's going to show how this principle works out in acts that are the acts that correspond to righteousness. They're righteous acts. In so doing, Jesus is going to underscore the point that he's already made in Matthew 5 again and again, and it is this. Your eye isn't the problem. Your hand isn't the problem. Your heart is the problem. The cause of the sin problem is our broken, defiled hearts and our lust within our hearts, and you need God to do a work on you inside out, as we were just telling the children about being the person God wants you to be on the inside, a man after God's own heart. The reason I say this is because the principle in verse 1 of Matthew 6 is your inner motivation for the, for the actions that you take. Y'all, I have seen up close ministries that focus on righteous acts. We do these things. These are the things and we do them, and we all see each other doing them. We get a little bit of lift from doing them. We were, we were serving yesterday to reach out with people with the gospel yesterday. We got in the moment of doing it. We enjoyed it. We were t- it was so fun. There's no more fun than, than serving the Lord. And I've seen up close ministries where we're doing these things, and we're doing them, and we're doing them. And doing them. What are we doing with, with the things? We're doing them, and we may forget why. What's the source of the motivation, the inner desire to do these things. Why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Jesus won't let you get by with just going through the motions. Our Lord and Savior doesn't allow us to simply say, well, this is what we do. That mindless, inhuman religiosity is something animals can do. Animals can do repeated learned behavior. But that's not what you're called to be. You're human. You're made in God's image and likeness to be about his work. And so... You have to think, and it has to be inside out, or it's not anything. Jesus said, if you abide in me and I in you, then you'll bear much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. That's an inside work of him through us with outside effects. Now, what is Jesus' effect, Jesus' assessment of works that I do when I'm not abiding in him? What is his assessment? In John 15, 5, what's his assessment? I just said it. The works that I do that are not his works through me, he says, are nothing. Without me, wait a second, no, 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 I I fed the poor. Not with him. If it's abiding in him, then you're doing something. If you're not abiding in him, he says, you're not doing anything. 
Paul echoes this when he talks about the character of Christ through the power of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit when he talks about uh, what I do in love. If I am doing these works of God with spiritual gifts even, but I have not love, I'm worthless. If I give my body to be burned, I'm, I'm, I'm worthless, he says, in John chapter 13 when he's describing the importance of love. The fruit of the Spirit, the abiding in Christ and the Spirit of Christ working in us, this is where the riches are. And Jesus is saying in this passage, not that we don't practice righteousness before men. Watch this. He doesn't say, don't practice your righteousness before men. How do I know that? Does anybody remember how I know that? I'm just turning backward in my Bible. One little page to what Jesus said. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salt again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, he gives it light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Either Jesus forgot what he said just a few minutes ago, for us several weeks because we're going slow, Either he forgot what he said, he's contradicting himself, or it matters why you do it. There's not a, a shade of difference between practicing your righteousness before men and letting your light so shine before men. There's no difference in what that means. The difference between Matthew 5.17 and 6.1 is why, listen, why you do it. God cares. Well, I did it. You didn't do it for the right reason, so no, you didn't. That's what he's saying. It's that involved. Wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. Are you telling me that God cares why I do the things that I do? That's the whole point of this entire passage. It's the whole thing. He doesn't want your actions. He wants your heart, and he wants to do his actions through you. He doesn't want your religious practices. He doesn't want you to stand up and sit down and say the same thing. He doesn't want you to come to a holy day of obligation because this is what we do. He wants you to worship him in spirit and truth. He wants the inside and he wants that to reflect on the outside. And if it doesn't reflect on the outside, then in that moment, we're not there on the inside. He wants all of you. And that's what Jesus is doing. The principle of practicing your righteousness before men, listen, to be noticed by them. It's very subtle. Satan's attacks on your spiritual life are subtle. You'll have a whole lot of truth and a little bit of lie. A whole lot of individual responsibility and accountability and a little bit of Ayn Rand's atheism thrown in to, to poison the whole thing. And there you have Atlas Shrugged. Satan's attacks are generally not people dancing around a campfire playing Dungeons and Dragons in black robes. Usually it's something that shows up like an angel of light with just a little bit of poison that kills you. And this is it. Beware practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. It's everything. In the day in which we live, we have people that are multi-generationally brought up looking at screens, imagining what it's like to be in front of a camera and to act in a certain way. We've always had people that were dramatic. We've always had people that were histrionic that would, would put on for, for an audience. 
But think about the way we are now where we're watching people pretend and we're watching them pretend and we're watching them pretend and we're watching them pretend and we're getting habits of watching people pretend. Oh boy, do we ever need to read a book. Instead of pretending and watching other people pretend and imagine what this would be like, we should be reading and imagining for ourselves, developing our characters. Just imagine what would happen if we just imagine. So, so in the time in which you live, the idea of doing something so that people see it is so ingrained, so deeply ingrained. It's like when you're first learning to iron. Y'all go with me on this. And you, and you iron that shirt and you forget that there's another side to it and there's a wrinkle on the other side and you're pushing it down. I was that kid, right? You get your shirt, you button it, to, to be ready, you put it down on the, on the ironing board, get it good and smooth. I can knock out two sides at one time. And you just iron that and you just go over it. Oh, this is going to be so good. And then you flip it over. <gasps> you flip it over and you've ironed this horrible wrinkle into the shirt that it's almost like you'll never get it out. Your mom gets out in three minutes. But, but you're, you're, well, I don't know what to do. This is how we are in our culture, this ingrained brokenness that everything we're doing is for people to look at us. What do they think about us? What is their assessment? What is their like? Do they click on what I've given? Do I have a good enough intro message to my little presentation that people will click? Do I get clicks? If they click, will they like it? And I don't care if they like it. I care if they click like. Because if enough people click like on what I'm presenting, then other people will think it's good. And then there will be value to me because of what people think of me. We live in a time technologically that Jesus nails with Matthew 6.1. You just have to let it all go. When people get enough and they walk away from social media in our time, I think a lot of that is, is this. They're just letting go of worrying about what people think about them. So am I supposed to let my light shine before men? I am. Am I supposed to let my light shine before men so that I think, oh, look how shiny? And that's the subtle piece. I do what I do, and I'm not clandestine, and I'm not secret about it. I'm not hiding it from others. But I do what I do because I'm serving the one who's the only one, the only one whose opinion matters. The only audience is a triune being that has brought you into intra-Trinitarian fellowship for eternity through his son, through the son in that trinity. The father, son, and spirit have brought you into eternal fellowship with God and the opinion that matters belongs to God. This is one of my favorite verses in all of scripture theologically. Understand, to understand the theology of what we're for and what God's doing, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, in the New American Standard, I think it's very well translated. It's not just our aim, it's our ambition to be pleasing to God. That's what we're after. And I'm not talking about religious, I did the things, so give me my pellet. Just religious, mindless obeisance. I'm talking about relating to God personally so that he's pleased because he's righteous and I'm walking in his righteousness. 
It's not that I need to do certain things and then God will dispense certain grace to me. That's not the the package. The idea is that God is our father. We're his kid. He's training us up. He's watching our performance and he's saying, that's mine. I did that. And I like to see that child acting like I act. I, I like to see that child loving like I love. I like to see that child putting on my son, Jesus, and becoming more and more like my son, that's what it's like. And so does that mean we do the things? Yes, because we're, we're kids of our father and we're becoming imitators of God as beloved children. So if you're writing the notes, it's 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, and it's Ephesians 5, 1, and 2, and we're walking in love. And while we're there, uh, let's do 1 Timothy 1, 5 and say that the goal of our instruction, even in this moment, is love, love from a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith. So we do practice our righteousness before men. We do let our light shine before men so that they will glorify our Father who is in heaven. They'll see our good works and glorify our Father. Not so that they notice us. And the subtle difference is that I am no longer in the picture. It's not about me. I don't allow myself to think of it about me. I'll quit shouting for a second. Just for a second. I gotta take a breath. Okay, back to shouting. So who wants to have a bad marriage? I'll wait till y'all think that one through. Who wants to have a good marriage? Those of you that aren't raising your hands and are married, I know you're saying, I already have a good marriage. And we're not thinking otherwise. But I'm asking the question because it's a pedagogical technique. Excuse me, it's an andragogical technique. I'm teaching adults. All right. Here's what happens. If you want to have a good Christian marriage, that means two Christians are married. If you're not married to a Christian, you're a Christian, that's technically not like a Christian marriage. But Christian marriage, Christ in the church, two believers doing God's will and the power of God's spirit. The Bible describes this most clearly in Ephesians 5 as the result of the filling of the spirit. The husband-wife passage in Ephesians 5, uh, uh, 22 through 33 is about Christians walking in the power of the Holy Spirit in marriage. That's the, that's, that's the topic. Those of you that have sat with me and we've looked through my model of how this works in Ephesians 5, um, this would be very familiar, but think about this. The key to the husband loving the wife as Christ loved the church, the key to the wife submitting to her husband as to the Lord in all things, or a Christian marriage, the key to this, I know, is the husband's performance. He's got to lead and love, and, and I understand that. But the real key to this for him to do that and for her to do her thing, you can't be looking at what you're getting. It can't be about you. Well, I'm just really not enjoying my marriage. Okay, but do you want to? Yes, then stop thinking about that. Stop thinking about what you're getting. I describe it this way for the young people. You have a treasure chest. Gentlemen, your wife has a treasure chest. It's open for you and no one else. It's for you to fill with marital blessing for the relationship. You are focused on her treasure chest and you are responsible, duty bound by God in his love to fill her treasure chest. She is not looking at her treasure chest. She's looking at yours. She sees that you have a treasure chest and a duty by God from two examples, a husband's love and Christ's love to love him as Christ's love of the church. So she can fill his treasure chest and not look at her own. And that means that I'm not taking count, hey, that's good stuff in my treasure chest. I mean, it's Christmas time. Is everybody watching their stocking? Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Santa Claus doesn't put stuff in the stockings until the 24th while we're having church. 
Um, <laughs> the real St. Nicholas would be in his church preaching a Trinitarian sermon. Um, but uh, but, but it, if my stocking just doesn't have anything in it. I'm feeling it. It's not full. That's not your job. You're supposed to be filling up the other person's. And this is what we do. We think it's about us. Now, those of you in a semi-successful or very successful marriage know I'm absolutely right that the more you look at what you're getting, the less you're worried about your responsibility to take care of the other person and the worse that marriage is. And those of you who are married to a selfish person and you're trying to be selfless, you know what it feels like to say, I'm taking care of that person's treasure chest and mine, I'm trying not to look at it, but I mean... It's empty, but I'm not looking at it. I'm taking care of that person. And that happens. A, a Christian married to a selfish Christian or a, a Christian that's walking with the Lord married to a, a selfish carnal person. It happens. It's a very common thing. The only way you get a good marriage, Merry Christmas, everybody. The only way you get a good marriage is stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking about, well, I'm not treated the way I want to be treated. It, as you're, su- okay, I know I'm stepping on some horrible pain. As you're suffering in your pain, you do what Paul did and you take it to the Lord. You take it to the Lord and you tell him all about it. It hurts, it hurts, it hurts. That's good prayer. That's good prayer practice. You read in the Psalms. But your job is not to figure out how to make that treasure chest fill up with the good stuff. It's not your job. Your job before the Lord, see, it's about duty. Your duty, the sacred trust God has given you, is to take care of that other person. And if, you'll, if you have two people doing that, you've got a Christ-like marriage. You've got God's design. If you have one person doing that, you have a great outcome at the judgment seat of Christ. God knows. He's keeping score. He knows all the stuff. You don't have to keep score. You don't have to remember all the horrible things that he did to you. He did them. He's horrible. He's horrible. He's got a treasure chest. You're married. You've got the Holy Spirit. Let's get to work. See, that's, that's the, the secret to Christianity, is it's not about me, it's about him. It's all about him, to borrow some excellent lyrics from an Alan Jackson song he wrote. It's all about him. It's not about us. And it's so easy to slip back into it's about me. Don't practice your righteousness before men. Beware practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have your reward with your Father who's in heaven. Now, we don't often notice that second line <laughs> Otherwise, he says, you have no reward with your father who's in heaven. We don't notice that the topic is already something he's introduced. He talked about this topic in the Beatitudes when he said, leap for joy. Rejoice and be glad in 512, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The reward of your father in heaven is always on Jesus' mind. There is a recompense it is not going to heaven. It isn't, I got in. And no, you're not more holy because when someone teaches biblical, the biblical doctrine of rewards, you say, well, I'm just glad if I get to go there and I don't want to talk about rewards. If you want to arrogantly put your theology above the scriptures, you can do that, but that'd be arrogant of you. You don't, you don't want to do that. The Bible teaches this. Jesus' topic isn't just righteousness before men. It's the recompense for the righteousness it's what God is going to do. And there's something in question. It's called your reward in heaven. You want it. You want what he wants to give you. And you forestall, you shut down what he wants to give you when you, when you do it the wrong way for the wrong reason. Just subtle. I'm just, you know, getting some clicks. I'm just letting people know that after all I'm here, it's about me. That shuts down the reward that God wants to give you. 
One of my favorite places that illustrates this very clearly in the epistles is in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. So those of you who are keeping score and taking notes or remembering things will remember that Pastor Dave uses this verse as a sermon illustration all the time, in part because I want you to memorize it. And I want you to have it ready to claim as a promise from God after a command from God. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Humble. Let's all do our, let's do hand motions. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Keep doing the hand motions so that, and the Greek says, in order that for the purpose of the next thing, so that he will exalt you at the proper time. Let's do that again. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he will exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him for he cares for you. I'm not going to do the care for you hand motion. He cares for you. Casting all your cares on him. In the context, it's the command to let you go. It's what Jesus teaches about gaining your life or keeping your life. You really want God to have his way there. Well, I, I hate to move on from verse 1 because it's one of my favorite principles. But I won't really move from verse 1 because in the next several paragraphs, Jesus is going to be elaborating on this concept of forfeiting eternal reward that God wants to give the disciples of our Savior because of wrong motivations. The first is the righteous act of giving. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. You hear it again? So that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now what kind of fop shows up in illustrious robes, probably some interesting headgear, walks kind of sideways, like waddles along down the street because he's glorious, and has paid people, trumpeters, I, these are near and dear to my heart, paid trumpeters to go before him and ta-ta-da, it's after all, it's me, I'm blowing the trumpet. Who would do that? See, the people doing it don't think they're doing that. They think they're letting their light shine before men so that people will know that they serve God and, and that their believer is in God and, and that they are, they're doing the right thing. They don't think that they're glorifying themselves, but they're not thinking about it. They just want to be sure that everyone knows that they're doing their part. It's so subtle. If you don't have people doing the right thing that are farther along than us, then we won't, as disciples, know the good example to follow to do the right thing like they did. It's very important in disciple-making that we're doing the right thing so that those watching us can learn to do the right things. But it's not so that we're noticed by them. It's so that they glorify our Father in heaven. It's, it's a subtle thing. And I don't feel like a particularly subtle person. Uh, but, but we are the problem. It's about us when we break this motivation thing into the wrong way. So when you're giving, you blow the trumpet. I joke around with Krista about this. Every time I do something around the house, I point it out to her. So I've, got, I've, I've said like three things this year. I've, I've blown the trumpet like three times. <laughs> did you notice I did the dishes? Yeah, I, know, I, noticed, I noticed. Blow the trumpet in Zion. I, I did some chores. 
When you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This is hard stuff for us when we're coordinating. Left and right hand, what do you mean? It means you just keep it a secret, even from your left and your right hand. It's, a, it's, a, it's an illustration. We're doing things that require coordination. We have to talk to each other to do the kind, like this, this, this is not a little thing giving 14 families a Christmas uh, gift set for their kids, giving Christmas gifts for 14 families, 33 plus kids. This church is doing in this project, like I'm calling it Operation Christmas Gift. It's not a little thing. It's a, it's a big thing. It's a, for us, for this little group, there's, there's a lot of resources. It's not a little bit of money. It's a, for us, it's a lot of money that God has provided through the offerings of his people. And we're stewards of this. And to be good stewards, we actually have to talk to each other. We actually have to, to share the plan. We have to coordinate things. And for this thing to go well, every person involved, every steward of this effort that we're shouldering as a church family together, we all have to say together, it is absolutely zero about us, about what we give, about the time we spend, about any of that. It, can be, it has to be zero about us. And we, maybe we all need to recalibrate. Sometimes it's a chiropractic visit of the soul. We just need to crack back into place a little bit. Be careful about this. When God gives us the privilege to do his work and we coordinate together to do it, make sure it is all about him and none about us. Every step. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret. Did you know that it's really cool in this church? They had a culture before I got here, and we've cultivated it and, and maintained it, I hope. I don't know what anyone gives. I'm the pastor. I shepherd you. I, I under-shepherd under Christ. I'm here to serve and encourage you, equip you, develop you, all that. The, as far as the Word of God, the Holy Spirit uses the Word. That's what my life is, the, the Word and prayer. Now, I don't know what you give. I don't know what your percentage of my salary is my support. I have no idea. I don't want to know. Please don't tell me. Please don't send me an anonymous note. Just understand that this is secret. You let your, for me, it's secret. You let your giving be in secret. And your father, what does he say? So that your father, God, the father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now who's talking here? My Bible has it in red letters. Jesus is talking. Now who's Jesus? God the Son, right? He's the Son of God, but he's also God the Son, as we mentioned earlier. This is a Trinitarian passage. He's talking about God the Father. He's, he's God the Son teaching God's people God the Father. See how that works? We're, we have to be Trinitarians if we're going to be biblical. But he says that your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. All right, why don't we do it? Why do we break this and cheat a little bit and just get a little bit of attention, a little bit of recognition. Why do we not just completely keep it unknown to people as far as what we're giving in order for God to, to bless us in secret because he sees what's in why do we Why do we fudge? Everybody's with me right now. I know you're all 100% we should think this way. God says to do this way. Why do I mess it up come Tuesday afternoon? The thrill is gone. The glow of the moment of the word has kind of worn off. If we're not careful, it's easy. it happens easily. I was really busy Monday. Here we are Tuesday afternoon. Really hadn't been praying like we should. And we fudge. We mess up just a little bit. Ah, I dropped the ball a little bit. Why do we do that? 
It has to do with God being in secret. It's, it's, it's very simple. It's because, as Peter said, we are not seeing him, but believing. As Paul said, we walk by faith and not by sight. It's because we lose sight of him, spiritually speaking. We lose track of the fact that God is there, he has an opinion, and he really is there. You can't see him, he's seeing what happens in secret. And we forget about him. Well, if I don't do something for me, then there won't be anything for me. Yeah, that's the lack of faith that drives carnality. That's the world we live in, that's unbelief. Jesus beats up on that idea all through this passage. You need to go back here and memorize some of this, work through this, because the whole premise is that your father is seeking to reward you, but it's on his terms, his way, and only as you trust him. It's faith. It's always faith. The second concept he gives is prayer. The most famous passage, perhaps besides the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, is what they call the Lord's Prayer. I will not assign a number of repetitive, gentilic sayings of the Lord's Prayer or anything else, because Jesus says absolutely not to do that, even though it's popular for people to ignore what he says and to do it anyway. In, Gen- in uh, Matthew 6, 5, he switches the topic from giving to prayer. And he says, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Every time he talks about these righteous acts, he says, so that they may be seen by men. Does he mean that we're not supposed to let people see what we're doing? No, we're not supposed to want people to think of us as doing it. We're supposed to want them to think of God as someone to praise and glorify because somebody did it and it doesn't have to be us. It doesn't matter about us. It's about that subtle thing that we mess up with. They pray in the synagogues and in the street corners so they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, Let's all say it together. They have their reward in full. They have their reward in full. The topic Jesus is making is that God has a purpose. We trust him constantly in his purpose. We do his work that he calls us to do in faith, and he has a recompense that we want. It doesn't say here they're going to hell because they don't uh, get this right. It says they have their reward in full. What's their reward? Isn't it like a fire? It's the appeal of men. It's people liking them. That's pretty nice. It's nice that people think highly of you. It's nice that you would have people uh, know that you were an altruistic person. You're a member of the community. You did nice things for people. Oh, that church over there, they gave to the poor people. That's nice of them. Isn't that sweet? That's not the purpose. But it's nice to have fame, fame for whatever reason. Oh, I want to be remembered for being a good person. Your reward is in full. Do you know what Jesus came to do? He came to reveal the Father. That's our whole mission. He commended that mission to us. We're representing Jesus, making disciples of his on that same task of revealing the Father. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, Close your door and pray to your father who is in secret. See the topic? It's secret. And your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Where are you going to get your reward? But Pastor Dave, if I don't take care of me, nobody will. That's the problem. You're going to take care of you. You're going to pay yourself. But Pastor Dave, 
ah, I just feel like you're saying something crazy and radical that we, we don't take care of ourselves. That's exactly what I'm saying. We're losing our lives for his sake and so finding them. It's a daily dying to self. It's no longer I who live, Paul says, but Christ is living in me. And I'm not saying that just because you trusted in Christ or were born again by the Spirit from above, when you first believed, you received the new Spirit. I'm not saying that that is instantaneously something you're going to consistently experience. I'm saying it's from now on, instantaneously, God's expectation of you. It's his provision for you. It's his high calling that we grow into and we serve in. And if you're not growing, you're retrogressing. When you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. So don't be like them. The Gentiles, every time he mentions them, it reminds us the context in which Jesus is speaking. He's talking to Jewish disciples of his who are really want to get this right with the law, with the God and with the law. The Gentile pagans around you that worship the false gods, they've got their incantations. They're gibbering on like the special words have special magic if you say them just right. It's funny how the Gentile paganism got into the church. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. How is that different from the Gentiles? Think about this. How is it different that my father knows what I need before I ask him? Well, the Gentiles, they, they're trying to do magic. They're trying to say words in sequence enough, and, and it's the mumbo-jumbo thing. They're trying to get their, their incantation and the powers that be, the gods that they, that they imagine, to do what they're asking them to do. Sympathetic magic, ritualistic magic. Uh, your God, your Father, knows what you need. It's personal. It's not mechanical. There's no mechanics. And what he's saying, except for, first of all, you're dealing with a personal creator who loves you, your heavenly Father. And so you can't get mechanical here. And there's nothing wrong with the model prayer. But the principles in the model prayer are far more important, I contend, for your daily prayer life than saying the words of the prayer. Our Father, pray that in this way, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does he do first in prayer? He honors the Father. He brings glory to the Father. He says something glorious and blesses, that's called blessing, the Father. It's bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me in Psalm 103. This is how you start. It's a great method. Is that mechanics? I mean... Personal relationship requires communication. The mechanics of personal relationship are communication mechanics. But just understand, it's much more important that we understand the principle than say these exact words. Because if you don't know what hallowed be thy name means, what good is it that you say it? Well, I said the words for the magic system that doesn't exist. You're supposed to be connecting to the holy God and thinking on that holiness. I don't have a right to come in your presence except the blood of Christ has paved the way, so I'm here on his account. That's hallowed be your name. That's what that means. That's what it implies. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was looking for the kingdom to come in the future. 
He was asking, he was physically present in Matthew. You've already heard the kingdom is at hand and he's asking for the kingdom to come. And you and I still should be asking for the promised kingdom to come. We're still looking for the restoration of planet earth and the curse of the ground to be removed far as the curse is found. We want to sing joy to the world and not as it be metaphorically speaking in our hearts. We want to sing joy to the world that all of the thorns have been removed, that the animals aren't at war with us anymore and the curse of the ground is gone into the freedom of the sons of God in Romans 8. I think we should definitely pray for the kingdom to come, for God to have his way on earth as it, as it is in heaven. This is still something that people that are looking forward to the kingdom should be asking for. And I do. The Bible ends with, even so come Lord Jesus, and we should continually live in this anticipation of the coming kingdom. Understand that that is a request for some aggressive, overwhelming violence against wickedness. The request for God to have his way on earth is the rod of iron shattering the nations like earthenware. It is the stone cut without hands grinding the kingdoms of the earth into powder and the wind blowing them away and then becoming the mountain that fills the whole world of the kingdom that is coming. It is a violent overthrow of a satanic order. That's what asking for the kingdom to come means. And it's, it is absolutely political. It isn't only political, but it is a political, historical, physical kingdom of David's physical descendant, the resurrected Christ, ruling on David's throne in Jerusalem, as promised. He then says something extremely practical in the moment, whether the kingdom's coming today or in the future, and it is coming in the future, give us today our daily bread. A lot of discussion about what this means. It is a request for logistical sustainment. Provide us what we need. Forgive us our debts as we forgive, have forgiven our debtors. I've had people say, well, this means that in the Mosaic law, they could never have eternal life or be forgiven unless they forgave others, so they were saved by their works. That's not what this means. This means that disciples of our Lord are imitators of God, and God is a forgiving God. And so if we are grudge-holding, unforgiving people, we're not in fellowship with our Father who calls us to be forgiving. This is very applicable to you. If you have a grudge, put it away, let it go. Don't count a wrong suffered. I didn't say that it doesn't hurt. I didn't say that you trust the person. I said the thing that you have that they've hurt you, release. You don't have that against them. Let God have it. Give it to him and forgive. You've been forgiven a billion. As the parable implies, you can forgive a hundred. Do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil, literally from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen. I believe that if this is Jesus' model prayer and you're just supposed to say these words, then in the Garden of Gethsemane, when for three hours, one hour, come see the guys, they're still asleep, they're asleep. Another hour, come back, they're still asleep. Another hour, get up, it's time to go to the cross. That's really what happens in Matthew 26. If this is how Jesus prayed and that's all he said, he must have said this hundreds and hundreds of times in three hours. But obviously that's absurd. It's not the words that you say, it's the model. It's the principles in these things. God, have your way in my life and earth with all that you said, do the things that you said you do. I'm trusting you about that and I want to have you have your way. So I'm fully desiring that. That's the kind of prayer that we should pray. The editorial remark that Jesus makes after this to explain theologically gets into forgiveness. For if, any, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. 
Beloved, this is in the realm of fellowship with God and being like your Father who's in heaven. The topic of forgiveness as a requirement is not in addition to believing in Christ as your Savior. He's not talking about that. He's talking about acting like God in in an appropriate way. He's talking about being children of your Father. If you are a grudge holder and you're saying, I imitate God, you're denying him. You're denying him the representation. So there's no fellowship forgiveness. I believe that's the topic there on forgiveness. I heard that, that alarm. I appreciate that. We're going long. In verses 16 through 18, the third righteous behavior is fasting. The third behavior that you want to be careful doing in front of men is fasting. And this is um, an interesting topic because it's not brought up much actually in the scriptures. It's something that people do. It's never commanded. Jesus did it in his wilderness uh, um, time, his 40 days in the wilderness with being tempted by the devil. Um, but if it, in as much as it's a righteous act, there's a righteous way to do it. And here's what people do with it. Oh, I'm super holy because I've been fasting. But it's not about me. <laughs> That's the idea. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so they may be uh, noticed by men. When they're fasting, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. It's that topic that keeps coming back. He zings you. This is a good preaching method. We could say that about Jesus, right? He keeps telling you the point is you have a motivation of God's favor and reward. You want that. Don't, don't settle for less. So if you're going to fast, which apparently, by the way, the theology of fasting, it is not sympathetic magic that if you give, give less, then God gives more. Or if you take less for yourself, then God, God heaps more on you. You're not forcing God into that uh, position. You're not a hunger, fa- a hunger strike like... Um, we're going to not eat until we get our way from the government. You're not forcing God's hand. Oh, I feel sorry for you. You're hungry. Oh, well, now I really care. That's not how it works with God. What's happening is you're marshalling the physical systems God has given you, and you're disregarding legitimate appetite in order to focus your attention. And you can use your hunger. You can use your hunger to focus your attention because every time it reminds you, you're like, oh, yeah. I'm back on the Lord because I'm hungry. Oh, I'm back to prayer. And, and you get that hunger pain. You get that sense. And, and that apparently is what it's for. It's a discipline factor. It is not a hold God hostage as your dad. Like, like if a little kid doesn't eat his dinner and so dad's worried about him, so he gives him what he wants. It's not what you're doing with God. Please don't think you're wrestling God into some sort of weaker position or you're leveraging his compassion for you. That's satanic. I believe that's really a satanic thought about God. It's true in cultures that, are, that embrace a sympathetic magic, that you're forcing God by some ritual. You're not ritualistically forcing God's hand by fasting, but there is value to it, apparently, as Jesus teaches. But you, when you fast, anoint your head with, anoint your, uh, anoint your, uh-oh, anoint your head and wash your face. How about that? Jesus wants you to comb your hair. He wants you to bathe. Cleanliness is next to godliness. How about good grooming is a good way to present yourself as one who represents God? That's what he's saying. Don't walk around like, oh, I'm fasting so I can't clip my nails. Don't, that, that doesn't make you holy. And people get all kinds of goofy ideas uh, from, ascetic, from, from their ascetic carnality, but that's not what he's, he's proposing here. 
so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who's in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. How many times is he going to tell us that? The second principle as we close is, is, is a restatement of the first principle, and it has to do with the thing he's been building to, your treasure, your treasure, your reward, your reward, your reward. He's going to launch on the storing up of treasure as the principle in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where neither thieves, thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I know we sound crazy. We sound absolutely crazy to say that there's nothing physical in this world that is supposed to be our treasure. Treasure's a noun and a verb. To understand how the noun works, let's use the verb. What do you treasure? What is the thing that you value the highest? Where, therefore, where does your attention tend? Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. If your heart is set on your treasure, which is the things of God, the things in heaven, the things of the creator, then that's where your heart's going to be because it's where your treasure is. It draws your attention. Ever teach a kid to play Frisbee? I'm, I'll do lessons if y'all want. I'll figure this out. When you throw a Frisbee, those of you that don't know, you're like, you're going to take our time afternoon on this. Yes, I am. Some, and nobody got up out of protest. Thank you. So when you throw a Frisbee, um, you don't want to throw it like that. That's not a good method. Uh, you generally, unless you're some sort of trick person, you don't really throw a Frisbee like that. You can throw an aerobie that way, but not a Frisbee. With just a good old Frisbee, you have to throw it like that. That's the first thing for kids to learn, is that you throw it from this, uh, I don't know how to, in, inward thing. But anyway, the next thing that they've got to learn is that where their hand stops is where it's going to go, right? This is my favorite thing. Frisbee with three-year-olds. Daddy, I'm going to throw this to you. Because they think that if you get it moving, it comes, because that's what happens when I throw it. What they have to learn is that where their hand ends is where the Frisbee's going to go. And if you want to do a good job, take a step, and you throw it. Now, y'all go practice. It's going to rain later, but we would hurry up and finish so you can go practice. So it, it stops where, you, where your hand is. And this is a good illustration for treasuring. Where your hand is is where that Frisbee goes. Where your treasure is is where your eyes are going to go. That's how it is. There's an orientation of life that God is calling us to that I don't know of any other way of having it except for a radical attention to God's word. You're not going to get there by thinking about how holy you are. You're not going to get there by emptying your mind and having a moment of transcendental meditation. You're going to get there from meditating on the law or the instruction of God day and night. The things of God become more real to us the more we pay attention to them. And the result is our treasure is where it belongs. And the details of life here on earth put their, take their proper place. Does this mean you don't have a retirement account? Does this mean you don't save? Does this mean you don't, you don't have property? It, it's not saying this. It's saying that that's, none of that is your treasure because you believe, as God has told us, that it's all kindling. Moth and rust are going to destroy. Thieves are going to break in and steal. All that stuff can be taken. But what really is of value can never be taken from you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I invite you to consider your eternal destiny with these closing remarks.
a word to disciples who have no relationship to God through the work of Christ, a word to disciples will have very little impact except perhaps by God's grace to give you an insight into what we're called to as believers. Perhaps God will help you understand what it looks like for Christians to know God and to trust him. That would be a work of God himself in you to even be able to grasp that. But this you can know without any question, that without Christ, there is no hope. Without Jesus of Nazareth as your Savior, there is no relationship with God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These words are very exclusive. There is no legitimate way around them. So you might as well go through them. How will you get hold of Jesus, who is the only way, the truth, and the life? The way you get hold of Jesus is that someone tells you what you must know, that God took on the flesh of man. God provided himself a sacrifice as promised, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You may be in a moment of clarity for the first time in your life right now thinking, what does this mean that God so loved the world that he gave his son? What it means is that you and I have a sin problem that we cannot account for, we cannot deal with, we cannot solve. God is so aware of the sin problem and he has made us so aware of it, the entire Bible is showing us all through the phases of human history that sin is worse than we imagine, that the separation from God is devastating and in the eternal state it is final and that the solution to this rebellion against God that has taken residence in all of our hearts is that God acted. Jesus took your sins in his own body on the cross. He died in your place to pay for your sins. From God's eternal plan, his eternal sovereign uh, omniscience, he knew exactly when and how to make this take place, and Jesus was born at the perfect time for the way of men to crush him, to be placarded, hung between heaven and earth on a Roman cross. This portrait of God's love was foretold hundreds and hundreds of years before when Moses was told to lift up a bronze serpent in the wilderness. And all the Israelites who had been bitten by the serpents, they just had to look to it and they would be healed. Jesus had to be lifted up so that you and I could look to him and trust in Jesus as our Savior. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. My only hope is in him. I'm trusting in him as my Savior. Our Father, take these words of life. Infuse them into our hearts so that if we have not heard them before, we're considering our Savior, what he's done for us. And those of us that are long Christians, those of us that have been believers for some time, even new believers, let these words sink in so that we're able to relay them, that we can share them with those who need them. Father, we have no greater hope than we could be part of your work. We don't deserve the wonderful boon of your grace that you've given it to us. That's why it's grace. But you can make us capable in your spirit through your word. Glorify yourself as we assimilate these things, we think about them, as we reflect on them, as we seek to practice righteousness so that the men that see them will glorify you in heaven and never us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.